Welcome to The Connector, where we connect North Carolina to ideas and North Carolinians to each other. This podcast series is from the Institute for Emerging Issues at North Carolina State University. And now to the conversation. Welcome to The Connector. I'm Sarah Hall with the Institute for Emerging Issues at NC State University. Joining me for today's special podcast is IEI's newest Director of Community Initiatives, Samantha Graham. Welcome back, Samantha. Thank you, Sarah. Hi. So not only have we reached the end of 2023, we've also reached the end of our first full year of the Connector podcast. And this year, we spoke with changemakers, business owners, and community leaders about the incredible work they're doing to support in advanced workforce development, educational attainment, digital inclusion, and more across North Carolina. These individuals have enormous responsibility as they work to tackle key emerging issues in their communities. And sometimes it can feel like the challenges are outweighing the opportunities. So about halfway through the year, we started asking guests an important question. What gives them hope? We had a lot of great responses, and today we're going to look back at some of our favorites. I can't think of a better time of year to reflect and show appreciation for what is working. Before we begin, Samantha, let me ask you, what gives you hope for IEI's community initiatives in this new year? Thank you, Sarah. I get very excited and hopeful thinking about the opportunities for new partnership development and the deepening of existing relationships in the coming year. Our current digital inclusion program is expanding to help support all regions and counties in North Carolina in digital inclusion planning and capacity building. We will also be meeting new people through our forum cohort work, as well as building upon established connections, which gives me hope for continued bridging of ideas and groups as we work to locally address the state's challenges and bring together communities to celebrate our state's unique opportunities. One program that podcast listeners will hear more about in the new year is IAI's Faith and Community Initiative. This secular initiative recognizes the important role faith communities play in connecting rural North Carolina communities to resources and information important to our state's economic vibrancy. The Faith and Community Initiative folds rural faith leaders into IAI's body of work, including the forum and community programs. Ellen Beasley, who is no stranger to IAI, was named the Faith and Community Initiative leader this year. Here's what she said when asked about what gives her hope in the new year. Faith communities have not been exempt from the hard times over the past few years. The pandemic threw so many loops for what was many folks a safe place when a hard time would come around. And I was really encouraged by the faith communities that we work with during the pandemic, by the creative ways that they found to remain in community with their congregations, as well as the communities at large. What gives me hope leading into 2024 as the new year is the passion and energy for asset-based community support and change that our faith communities are amplifying. Instead of being defeated by dwindling congregants, they are leaning heavily into asking questions such as what can the church look like and what should it look like for our community? They are channeling their inner NC State fandom and are the embodiment of the motto think and do. I love how Ellen talks about new and innovative ways that churches can be stronger anchor institutions in their communities. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there is so much that is placed on our rural faith leaders to really solve the problems of, you know, what's happening economically, what's happening socially. Um, do I have enough food to, you know, to feed the community? Um, what does workforce development look like? So I do think over the last several, you know, years and decades, you know, really we've we've been asking faith leaders to take on so much more. So I do think that 
you know, our ability to help provide them and with resources and information, and then have someone like Ellen, who is just such a natural connector and relationship builder, building uh, relationships across the state and connecting them um, to policy and program is just so wonderful for our community. So thank you, Ellen, uh, and to our entire faith and community team here at IEI. Um, we've got a few more for you. And so the next one that I want to bring to your attention is Community Supporting Schools of Wayne County. Their executive director, Selena Bennett, told us about the work her team is doing to close the educational attainment gap in Wayne County and help kids stay in school. When asked what gives her hope, Selena shared a story illustrating that success isn't just measured in numbers and data points. Let's take a listen. Just last night, we hosted a volunteer appreciation dinner for the restorative justice volunteers. We had a young girl that spoke about the impact of our program and the positive experiences she had had. This is a young lady that was on her way to the juvenile justice system. She had received, it was a misdemeanor charge, a very challenging home environment. And she shared her story with us last night. And I sat there with tears just pouring down my face because I thought, you cannot measure success in our program with just data points. Sure. We know that data is important, but what we do day to day and one success story at the time, that's what gives me hope. So if you know me, you know I love a good data point, but we know that data alone doesn't change hearts. And so storytelling is really so important. Another really good response we got was from Isothermal Community College Vice President of Academic and Student Affairs, Greg Thomas, who joined us to talk about their approach to community engagement. When asked what gives him hope, Greg talked about the long-term life-changing impacts their programs and grants have on individual students in Rutherford and Polk counties. You know, I would say what gives us hope, you said it's an emotional question, so I'll give you an emotional answer. It's, it's the individual stories of students who are pulled in by this work and who go on to see success. And one of the things that we haven't talked about um, at, at this point today, but that did come out of our focus group work was that connection with workforce-based credentials, especially short-term-based credentials, and the restraints that people have on finances. So another thing that, that we've recently done uh, is we started a, a workforce grant here at Isothermal. And that workforce grant is for short-term workforce credentials that we offer through continuing education. And if you don't know much about continuing education, you may not know, uh, or listeners may not know, that federal financial aid doesn't apply there. So even though a continuing education class may have a fee that's as low as $200, if I don't have $200, I can't take that opportunity. And we have several programs through continuing education where you can get a credential that's gonna lead you to a good paying wage in a short amount of time. And if $200 is what's stopping me from pursuing that, that's a real waste. So we put this grant into place and we identified our programs that have short-term workforce potential and lead to good jobs. And I'll give you, I'll give you an example. And this is why I went off on that track when you asked the question. 
we recently had a, a truck driving class graduation and we used that workforce grant to help fund people into going into that program. It's a little more expensive. It's more like three or $4,000 versus $200. But we used that grant to help pay for that. And we had a truck driving graduation recently where we had 14 people graduate. So that's 14 people who are gonna go out. And I don't know if you've looked at the wages for truck driving here locally in North Carolina, especially in the Western part of the state, but they're good wages. And we had one student who during the graduation, uh, she's a female student, she is an adult student. She's standing on stage and she said she was gonna soak up the graduation because it was the first graduation she'd been a part of. And that, that's changing, that's life changing, right? She, she didn't have her high school graduation, no college graduation, but she's got that truck driving, that CDL now. And we know that she's already got a job lined up and she's going to make really good money. And that's going to change the life of her and her family that she's supporting. And it's those kinds of stories where we were able to connect somebody who had previously not been connected to education successfully, even in high school, and connect them to a life-sustaining wage and to that economic and social mobility that we talked about. That's the kind of stuff that makes me think we got to keep doing this. We got to keep pushing forward because there's more lives we can change like that. You know, for many of us, we really don't get to see the impact of our work right away. So for both of these examples, when you hear how a program that you have been a part of that has directly impacted the life of someone in a positive way, that this one person can now realize a future of opportunity for themselves that previously may not have existed, and not just opportunity for themselves, but even the trajectory of their children or loved ones. I mean, that ripple effect can be huge. And it's also so important, you know, for our own morale and filling up our own tank to keep going. You know, Samantha, I'm reminded of, uh, you know, a recent story um, from the Wilson Education uh, uh, partnership. And they, you know, as a result of being a part of our uh, previous cohort, um, was able to drum up a lot of new um, attention for their program. And I think it even ended up leading to new businesses wanted to reach out and become a part of their program. And so I know, at least for us personally here at IEI, those are the stories that sort of keep our gas tank filled. And so if any of you listening have other stories like that, please do let us know. But Samantha, tell us what you've got on tap. Thank you, Sarah. I totally agree. It does a lot for me personally to see how our work is actually helping to support service providers in the state and affecting real lives and communities. In celebration of National Digital Inclusion Week this fall, uh, we spoke with several leaders about efforts taking place nationally, statewide, and locally to bridge the digital divide in North Carolina. One of our guests was State Library of North Carolina Digital Literacy Skills Coordinator, Lori Special. A recent review of digital inclusion plans across North Carolina showed that libraries were the most cited community asset for digital access and support by people of all ages. However, they are woefully underfunded and staffed, and I appreciated hearing how we can better support these critical institutions. I think Lori gave some um, really great ideas for how we can better um, support digital inclusion across the state and really help lift up librarians. They feel more empowered to do their work. <laughs> the library staff. The people who work in the library. We saw in COVID that the library is not a building. The library is the people. And, you know, as I talk, I don't refer to, oh, the library will do this, the library will do that. No, the library can't do anything. It is a building. The people are the ones in the library that do. Everyone who works in a library 
is a lifelong learner. What they want to learn about is different, but everybody works there because the that environment of information speaks to them. And also people in libraries want to help. They want to give you the right information. They want to see you succeed. They want to see you do what you need to do. And that gives me hope. And what also gives me hope is that you know, I did a, um, I'm interviewing library staff to see what it, library directors to see what it is that they would like to see in a program. What are the biggest challenges? What are some barriers? And, you know, staffing, transportation, generational poverty, you know, that, that lack of experience or family history of going to libraries for help, of asking questions. Those kinds of things are huge barriers. One of, and one of the things that a few of the library directors talked about was bias and historic discrimination. In 1964, schools were desegregated and libraries were supposed to also become desegregated. However, some of those lingering biases still exist and trust has to be built up. And we've got a new crop of North Carolinians coming in who speak other languages. We have, we still have biases. We still have staff, you know, expressing biases against other staff or people who come in. The, the recognition, not only by library directors, but also by county governments of this fact gives me hope. Training is instituted. Just speaking it, you know, you have to admit you have a problem in order to overcome it, to see a way around it, through it, above it, under it. So that's what gives me hope that not we're people are looking at the digital divide and not only the lack of oh, we don't have broadband, we'll get broadband and then everything will be great. It's more complicated than that. It's actually not just complicated, it is complex. You have lots of stakeholders, lots of issues. We can't, we can't, libraries and library staff cannot meet all of those challenges for all of the people. Right now with this pro project, we're looking at digital literacy, digital knowledge, and public library staff. And hopefully, by addressing these barriers, we can tick them off, the ones that we can deal with one at a time. We also spoke with our local partners in the mountains of North Carolina about their direct work with digital inclusion. High Country Council Government's GIS analyst and planner, Tatiana McGee, and Avery Mitchell-Yancey Regional Library Director, Amber Briggs, joined us to discuss how they got involved in digital inclusion planning, the successes and challenges they're seeing in their communities, and how implementation funding will directly impact residents of Western North Carolina. 
I loved hearing their local and personal perspectives and to learn more about how IAI support is helping to create real impact in the mountains of North Carolina. We asked Amber and Tatiana what they loved most about their work. Amber spoke to how motivating the work is because it's constantly changing and affects so many people in her community. Her fellow librarians get to interact with community members and the help the library provides can be life-changing, like helping connect them to job postings. Tatiana feels like her work has been exciting and somewhat easy because digital inclusion is so widely supported right now that it's truly a universal issue. This work helps to lift up the voices of community members who would otherwise be forgotten. Oh, well, um, this work uh, changes day to day. It is exciting. It's unique. Um, library work in general, I, I just feel like I'm doing something new or meeting someone who has a great idea. There's a lot of wonderful people in Western North Carolina who want change, who want to have a better community. And so that is highly motivating. When you have other people who are motivating, it just sort of builds. Um, and as far as enjoying this work, it comes down to individual interactions. I mean, I'm a director, so I'm not at the desk, but my staff are incredible at informing me about um, people who come in and say, you assisted me in getting a job. You know, like you showed me um, resources that I could use for, um, you know, I'm, I'm selling candles in the community or, you know, and I didn't know how to market my material. And you told me about how I could do this website. And, and people generally, when they know their library, they want to come in and tell you thank you. So um, that is the best part of this work is hearing someone call me on the phone and say, I have broadband at my house. Like, oh my my gosh, Amber, like it changes everything. We don't need our hotspot anymore because this has happened. So um, that's what we want to hear. We want to hear from the people. It's why we do this work. And this is what Tatiana had to say. What I enjoy the most is like very similar to what Amber was saying, is that there is a lot of very talented, very smart, creative, innovative people in Western North Carolina in rural communities, and they often get forgotten about. Um, and also what I was mentioning earlier is with the issue of digital inclusion is that I received zero pushback. Like I didn't have a single person from any background, any, anything, they were all very much like, yes, like this is a problem. I've experienced it personally. My grandma has, my mom has, my kids are, my neighbor has, it's very across the board and you get very few issues <laughs> where everyone is agreeing and you don't have sort of the obstacles of like, well, how do I convince this person? Like, what, what is this like different viewpoint I can put in? It's like, you don't have to do any of that. So you can save like so much time in trying to get things started. I would say the biggest thing that you sort of like have to quote unquote explain is just like the, the vocabulary and like ACP is affordable connectivity program and just sort of like get people up to speed on that. It's like, they already know what these concepts are. They just don't really have like the dialogue and like vocabulary for it that like, people in the digital inclusion universe sort of speak <laughs> and we don't realize. Um, and internet access, affordability, digital literacy, device access is needed. And everyone agrees on that. You don't get that often. And I feel like if that's fostered and nurtured, we can all get a lot further along the path of digital inclusion. And the world is constantly changing. I would say like pre-COVID, we didn't really expect COVID. We didn't expect this to sort of like 
blow up and have sort of these all of these inequalities just become even more intensified. And as new technologies and advancements come about, it's just going that divide is just going to keep increasing um, with new things coming along. A lot of people assume that you just have internet access, you just have a device and don't get even started on digital literacy when it comes to like telehealth, online education, um, online banking. They're like, oh, here are these new advancements for you to use. But the basic fundamental of just like internet access, like not a lot of people don't have that. And they're just falling further and further behind because they don't even have, they're like, I can't even get on the internet, much less like do online banking or whatever new things are coming about and getting more importance in society. And I would say the thing that also motivates me a lot is that like, I just also dealt with not having internet access. I'm from a small town in North Carolina. Um, we were one of the first counties in North Carolina to get free devices for like grades six through 12. And when I was in sixth grade, this was like a while ago. <laughs> and we got like these clunky laptops and all of a sudden was like getting assigned like homework and projects to do online. And like, I would go home and like, we would not have internet. Like I was like, they're just assuming that we have internet. And this was <laughs> when I was in sixth grade. <laughs> And I would have to like sit outside or try to get internet from a neighbor. Or then we ultimately got dial up, which is pretty much also not internet because it takes 48 hours to download something, which now if I were to do it right now, it would take me two seconds. Um, and so it would be, it would have been very easy to fall behind in sort of that environment. And I'm sure a lot of kids and sort of like as a naive, like, sixth grader I had no idea I was just like this is weird like this isn't really fair like what do I do and I mean I made it work <laughs> but it took it took a lot more effort and time and like planning and like having my parents try to take me somewhere going to the library to like try to use the library computers because the library didn't even have wi-fi at that time um and it was just like assuming that people have access and availability and like the privilege to do these things while in 2023 a lot of people don't and that's just unfair <laughs> and I think also just bringing awareness to the fact because I think a lot of people just truly don't know like a lot of teachers during COVID like probably didn't realize before online school how many of their students like had an unstable home life didn't have stable housing, didn't have internet, didn't have access, or also the relationship between grandparents and like taking care of children during COVID is that if they need technical support, people may be assumed like, oh, their parents will help them, but maybe they're not around, maybe they're working. And then they have a caretaker, a grandparent or someone else who just also doesn't have the ability to sort of troubleshoot. And it just creates, it's like the more, there's so many like different spheres of like the justice system too, or like kids who are like in the juvenile system and then online attendance and the teachers are like, well, why aren't they attending school, but they don't have internet access. And then it keeps them further down that path. And so it's kind of just amazing the things you can learn about of like different backgrounds that you just wouldn't know if you just weren't aware. And I think that's one of the most important things. 
I really love what we've been able to help support in the Western part of the state with the support of the Dogwood Health Trust um, in terms of helping all 18 communities in the or counties in the Kuala Boundary be able to develop these digital inclusion plans. You know how Tatiana grew up with no internet. My hope is that that's not going to be the case for generations to come, not just in Western North Carolina, but across the state as well. Thanks to so much to all of our connector guests this past year and to everyone who has tuned in to listen or recommend this podcast to their network. We appreciate you. I also want to thank our connector production team, James Herrick and Jen Heiss, who help us highlight these best and promising practice from across the state and bring them to you each month. And to Kirsten Chang, who helps make sure social media uh, is promoting these podcasts, uh, we appreciate you as well. Um, and while I'm at it, to our team at IEI who make coming to work every day not only meaningful, but also really enjoyable, I want to say thank you. Along with our partners and our board members, this team is the reason all of this great work is possible. And their relentless commitment to making North Carolina a place where people can connect and collaborate to help build a vibrant and more prosperous future for all, that's what gives me hope. So thank you again for tuning in. Until next time, let's all stay connected. This has been a presentation from the Institute for Emerging Issues at North Carolina State University. To learn more, please visit us at emergingissues.org.